Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. An interesting story this week, as people are making a ton of money on a new type of digital asset known as a non-fungible token or NFT. These NFTs can be anything from digital art, sports cards, even pieces of land in a virtual environment. And they're authenticated by blockchain, which proves you own it. Recently, a 10-second video artwork that was originally bought for $67,000 sold for $6.6 million. For more on how the market for NFTs are booming right now, we'll speak to Elizabeth Howcroft, reporter at Reuters. So as you say, NFT stands for non-fungible token. And this phrase non-fungible just means that unlike most digital items, which can be endlessly reproduced and copied, each item that's made as an NFT is unique and has only one true owner whose status as the owner is authenticated by blockchain technology. So the blockchain acts as a kind of public ledger that verifies that they're the owner. The kind of assets that can be NFTs are actually really varied. Uh, digital art is a major example, as you say, but they can also be things like a patch of land in a virtual world environment or a digital collectible item, sort of like trading cards, or even exclusive use of cryptocurrency wallet name. It's a really varied area, but yeah, as you say, digital art is uh, definitely catching some headlines at the moment. Now, what kind of value, and I, I know a lot of this can be very subjective, but what kind of value does this hold? You said this an NFT could be a patch of virtual land in a game or something like that. What kind of real value does that hold? I know the blockchain, that whole part of it shows that there's an owner and all that, but how does that propel it to be so valuable? Well, I think one of the reasons why people are so interested in NFTs is because they raise really big questions about what we mean by value. And people aren't really sure how to judge the value of these things. But one reason a lot of enthusiasts who I spoke to said that they do have value and that, that they merit the sort of prices that they're going for is that these are items or assets that exist in the online realm. And for most of us, that's where we're spending most of our lives. Actually, a few people all gave the same example, which is if you're spending all your time on the internet or sitting behind your computer and you want to splash out on something, why buy an expensive gold watch that none of your friends are going to see that doesn't exist in, in your online life when you can buy something that actually does exist in that world? And that's the world where you're spending your time. So that's some people's rationale for it. Give me a few more examples. In your article, you mentioned a clip of LeBron James doing a slam dunk. It sold for $208,000. So this kind of got started for the U.S. National Basketball Association Top Shot website. So people can kind of make video highlight clips and sell those. The NBA gets a cut of that. They get royalties off of that. I mean, this is just kind of an example of how people are creating these clips, this digital art, however you want to call it, and then making money off of that. So NBA Top Shot is a really interesting example. It's a really big platform that's actually been credited with bringing a lot of new people into the NFT space. As you say, people can buy, sell and trade these NFTs in the form of video highlights of key basketball moments on this site. And the NBA gets a royalty on every sale. To give you an idea of the rate at which that's grown, sales on this site for February alone were nearly 200 million having increased nearly fivefold from January, where it was 44 million. So, so the rate of growth on a site like this is really huge. There's a lot of excitement around it. But there are investors that are urging caution. 
You know, there's a lot of money flowing back and forth on all this stuff. They say that this could represent a price bubble in the future. Do these digital pieces of art and whatnot hold their value over time? These are big questions that are really unanswered yet. To me, it seems that there's not just one big driver behind NFTs, but rather they come at the center of a number of different things that are going on at the moment. They could be benefiting from the hype around cryptocurrencies and blockchain, as well as the idea of virtual reality, maybe being able to one day create online worlds in, in which these items would be valuable. The sort of explosion of interest in this area has also coincided with the surge in retail trading. So people sitting at home and speculating on markets. So that has made a few people sort of concerned that this could be a bubble. And, and one person I spoke to who'd been in the market for a while actually says in the article that he thinks it could be a bubble. Also, the fact that it's sort of driven by hype in a way means that there's also risks in the sense of possible fraudsters in the market, particularly as a lot of people are operating under pseudonyms. So it's a sort of risky area. Yeah, I mean, it's just so interesting how we kind of keep creating these new avenues to make money, trade money. Obviously, you know, cryptocurrency has a, a huge part in this. And it's almost near impossible really to monetize these digital artworks in these spaces. But we're finding a way. It's just the story popped up this week and it just instantly grabbed my attention because everybody's always looking for new ways to make money or trade things. So it's just a, a big, interesting story on how this all works. I think the key driving factor that just everyone I've spoken to has mentioned when they're talking about how crazy things have got in, in the last month or so is just the internet and the amount of time we're spending online. People think, well, if this is where the world is now, this is a world where there should actually be more complex economies and marketplaces and, and ways to have ownership. Elizabeth Howcroft, reporter at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The rise of doorbell cameras have become a powerful tool for law enforcement, but they also pose a risk. These same cameras can be used against them by allowing suspects to see the cops coming, possibly causing harm to them. It happened in South Florida when two FBI agents were killed by suspects who saw them coming on the ring doorbell cam. For more on this, we'll speak to Drew Harwell, technology reporter at The Washington Post. It's the gift and the curse of omnipresent surveillance. And cops, like you, I mean, like you said, I mean, police are getting a ton of evidence and material that they otherwise never would have seen because there are millions of these cameras now out recording all the time, saving video of just you know random sidewalks and and doorsteps that never would have been caught on camera. So you know, I've talked to police officers and they've said like all of these cases of cars getting broken into or vandalism, we never would have had evidence before. We now have evidence. That's great. But but the flip side is that, you know, um, and, and the FBI and local law enforcement have, have talked about this as a risk in terms of we don't even know who's watching us when we go to the door. Uh, you know, when we're if we're executing a search warrant or just knocking on the door to ask somebody, you know, if I'm a first responder going to a medical call, attending to some domestic violence or something, I don't know who's going to be watching me from the other side, what they're doing, if they're going to try and do me harm. And so that's, you know, exactly what we saw in the case in South Florida, where FBI agents were going to execute a search warrant on this guy. The guy was able to see them through his home camera and he opened fire through the door. It's a horrible incident. And it just goes to show that, you know, these cameras, they really allow the owner to have a lot more power and a lot more sort of monitoring ability that we've never really had to reckon with before. It's hard to track exactly how many of these type of doorbell cameras 
are out there. But, you know, experts say it could be in the millions. And this could be just Ring cameras. There's also uh, Google Nest. There's other doorbell cams that are out there. But tell me about what we know about how many households might have these type of cameras in front of their their homes. We know it's definitely in the millions. Ring has said, you know, they have millions of clients out there. And there are researchers who have done their own kind of analyses and they say, well, there's probably more than 3 million Ring doorbell cameras. And then that's not in, that's not even including all of the other Ring devices, right? They have stick-up cams that you could put anywhere. They have peephole cameras. They have indoor cameras. They're, they're building new ones. And, you know, Google Nest has their own sort of huge user base. There's Blink and Arlo. There's a bunch of competitors now, and they're all kind of competing, and they're all driving down the prices. They're making them more accessible and uh, easier to install and buy and use. And so, you know, but it, so it's interesting because a lot of people are turning these on and they're not, you know, tech people. They are, they're people who want the peace of mind. They want to know, okay, I got my shipment at my door. It's not going to get stolen. Or I want to know who's sort of knocking on the door at night or whatever. Um, so, you know, there's a huge kind of peace of mind factor to, to why these things are so popular. Um, and yet, you know, the, the other side of it is that, all of these residential areas are getting, you know, millions of cameras now uh, overseeing their, their public areas. And these are areas where, you know, kids play and neighbors meet up and, you know, people are um, delivering packages, delivering mail, delivering food, uh, knocking on the door and asking for charity. All these people are being recorded and watched in a way that, you know, that w w we weren't really prepared for. And so I I'm just sort of interested in how that's changing law enforcement, how that's changing kind of community life now that everything is so closely under surveillance. Tell me a little bit about the relationship that law enforcement has with Amazon and these ring doorbells, because they made about 20,000 requests last year for footage captured by these cameras. There's partnerships that they have together in, I think it was almost every state except Montana, I think it was in your article. Tell me a little bit more about that. A couple of years ago, Ring started building a tool that would allow police to, you know, they can draw a map, they, they can draw sort of a box uh, around an area where there was a crime and Ring will automatically email out these police requests to people and say, if you have video from, you know, these hours and you want to share it, just, you know, click yes effectively and the cops will be able to see whatever your system recorded. So that was, you know, back in 2018, that was something that only a couple dozen um, police forces had online, but now there's more than 2,000 across the U.S. and, and uh, practically every state, like you said, except Mont Montana and Wyoming, from, from corner to corner of, of the country, rural, suburban, urban, every kind of police force now has this kind of access. And so, you know, more than 20,000 requests for, for video from people last year went out from these from these agencies. And, you know, uh, the people who own the cameras can say no. They, they can volunteer their their footage or or they can refuse um and they won't be punished for it but a lot of homeowners just say oh yeah of course not why why would i not you know share my video uh if i can contribute to to stopping a crime or, or whatnot and yet um it's really interesting because ring is really the only one who has sort of formalized this relationship with the police other companies including google nest has said we're not working on any kind of partnership with that and you know privately there's been some anxiety around how closely should a private company work with, you know, the public authorities, public law enforcement to convey that kind of 
you know, sensitive data and surveillance data um, over, over to the police, who's being recorded and, and what's being captured. And so, you know, Ring has really formalized that in a way and, and, and police have really sort of taken to it. And, and we're just kind of starting now to understand what the, the side effects are. As you mentioned, millions of cameras out there, millions of people being recorded. It can be a great asset for police. But then again, the concern that we've been talking about, the flip side of that, people watching cops as well. And there was numerous FBI bulletins and memos that went out alerting agents to certain things like this. So it's a real concern, as you mentioned, as these things just keep increasing and the surveillance of everybody really keeps increasing. Drew Harwell, technology reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. In politics, the conversation about raising the federal minimum wage continues in Congress after it will not be allowed to stay in the COVID relief bill. Some members of Congress want an increase to about $10 and want something regional to apply. Many large businesses have already raised wages, and while other businesses do support the increases, not all of them are sold on President Biden's $15 an hour plan. For more on this, we'll speak to Eric Murath, labor and economics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. I think the minimum wage is going to continue to be a hot topic in Washington because President Biden is calling for a raise to $15 an hour. So businesses are a little bit in a peculiar spot. They're not across the board against a minimum wage increase. In fact, even the Chamber of Commerce, sort of the voice of business in Washington, has said they think it's probably time after 12 years to raise the minimum wage. But they're stopping short of a $15 an hour level. It seems in general, businesses are a little bit more comfortable with something between 10 and 12. And there's even been Republicans in the Senate that have backed a $10 minimum wage. So there seems to be room for compromise. The question is whether the president and Democrats you know, are willing to lower their desire on this, or if they're going to hold out and say, you know, this is only something that we do once a decade, we can't afford to go small on it. Right. Yeah. The head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce said that the $15 number seems more like it's based on politics and not sound economic analysis. What a lot of these companies would rather have is everybody kind of wants that phased rollout, the slow incremental increase, but they want to kind of allow for regional differences. You know, if you live on the coast where it's a lot more expensive, the cost of living, you know, maybe $15 works there, but in some of the other areas, it might be a lot. And, you know, the burden obviously is very high on small businesses and restaurants in particular. In fact, we sort of already have a regional model, not by choice, but just by the way it worked out in that 29 states have raised their minimum wage. But, you know, proponents of the federal increase will point out that in cities such as Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Dallas, places that the cost of living isn't that low, still follow the 725 rate. So they say sort of you only leave it up to the states. Some states may choose not to act at all on that. But yeah, a lot of businesses want to make sure that the rollout is phased in and would like some sort of a dispensation if they operate in lower cost areas. But then some businesses say you got to be careful and not have too many exceptions. McDonald's, who we connected with for this story, said, you know, they don't want to see where their competitors might be classified as a small business, but because they're part of an you know international brand or classified as a big business, you know, that a restaurant is a restaurant competes with the other restaurants in the town. So there's a lot of challenges to work out, but businesses, I would say, are not fully opposed to it, but just not ready to go to 15. Yeah. And McDonald's, you know, the behemoth that it is, right? Most of them are franchises and independently owned. So there's the balance that needs to be struck there. Tell me a little bit more about the bigger companies. Let's say the Amazons, the Costco's, the Walmarts, 
they've already raised their starting pay, a lot of them to $15 an hour. How do they fare in all of this conversation? These big companies, they kind of fall into to two buckets. So Amazon, probably most notably, but also I think Costco and Target would also fall into this. They've already set a $15 minimum wage and Amazon is openly campaigning. They say, hey, the whole country needs to move to $15 an hour. And they point to that brings better productivity, better likelihood of retaining workers. But some economists I talk to and some small business I talk to say, Amazon's a perfect example. They're able to automate their warehouses. They have stores where they don't even have cashiers. They have the technology and the money to invest in labor-saving methods. The local grocery store may not even have a self-checkout aisle yet. So they're saying that's not exactly equal. Walmart's more in the middle. They say they're pretty in line with the chamber overall. They say there should be a minimum wage increase. They start workers at 11, but they very much want to make sure they still have the flexibility to start people at a little bit lower than 15, especially in the more rural parts of the country where they operate. You know, on the Amazon front, just briefly, because this is another story, they're also facing a unionization effort in one of their warehouses in Alabama. So, you know, they, they want to look very good and, and on the side of employees on that front. But that's a, obviously another discussion there. One of the biggest concerns with all of this is job losses. And the CBO had a report out that said there would be a lot of lost jobs if the federal minimum wage was raised to $15 an hour. It did also say that a lot of Americans would be raised out of the poverty level. So there's pluses and minuses there. But I mean, really, that is a big concern that there would be job losses. The CBO report points out that more than a million Americans could lose their job from a $15 minimum wage. But the same report says 27 million Americans would receive raises. And so it's a little bit different discussion. I mean, I would say when I covered this a few years ago, a lot of concern was, you know, we just can't accept any type of job loss. There's certainly some Democrats out there that say, Maybe we can accept that a $7.25 an hour job isn't a job that we really need in this economy and that maybe we need to spend money elsewhere to train workers and get them up to the level so they can get and qualify for a $15 an hour job. But there's definitely some willingness, I think, to trade some modest amount of job losses if you get 10 times that in terms of families getting raises. As I mentioned, it doesn't look like it's going to be part of the COVID relief bill. What's the next step for this discussion? Is this going to have to be some type of standalone bill? Yeah, most likely it'll have to be some type of standalone. So at this point, I think the choice is do members of Congress look to find a compromise, find a number in the middle where you could get Republican support and allow it to pass in the Senate? Like I said, Senator Romney, Senator Cotton have put out minimum wage increase proposals. So there is something out there to be had. Or is it stand firm and 15 or nothing and kind of go back to the electorate and say, hey, one party, we support this and another party, they don't support it. And, you know, if you look at a place like Florida, overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump in November, also overwhelmingly supported a $15 minimum wage in the state. And even Senator Rubio took note of that and said, there's probably some room here to raise the level, but no Republicans have stepped out and said it should be 15. Eric Marath, labor and economics reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.